And welcome to First Up, it's Lapa, Wednesday the 10th of August, corn at Truebridge Aho. Coming up, tributes flow for Olivia Newton-John. Pam Corkery joins us from Brisbane. The FBI raids Mar-a-Lago, that's the home of former President Donald Trump, will have the latest out of Washington. Research shows weather events including heat waves and flooding are making most infectious diseases more severe. And ever thought of standing for council? Well, now's your chance, an SOS for local democracy as the deadline for local body nominations looms. We know that we have far less candidates who have put their names forward than we actually have spaces on our local councils and community boards. Maria, welcome to First Up. We're going to begin this morning in the crazy state of Florida, where the FBI have raided the home of former President Donald Trump. The search was carried out as part of an investigation into Mr Trump's handling of official papers. It all comes as he prepares for a possible third presidential run in 2024. Mr Trump, on the uh, in response, has said the raid is prosecutorial misconduct and weaponisation of the justice system to to prevent him from that third run. Well, joining us now is our Washington-based correspondent, Kate Fisher. Morena, Kate. Good morning. Let's start with reaction to this. Uh, Obviously, there's been a little bit of time to digest it. Uh, How are people responding sort of across the political spectrum, I suppose? Well, um, conservatives and Donald Trump supporters are outraged. There was Fox News has been just discussing, you know, referring to the US justice system as that of a banana republic. Um, Many of his supporters gathered outside Mar-a-Lago last night to show their support. Uh, Conservative Republican politicians uh, have also been speaking out, including Kevin McCarthy, who is the leading Republican in the House, who has said that has threatened that once the Republicans retake the House in November, he's expecting his party to win uh, control of that chamber, uh, then they will start an oversight committee to look into the Justice Department's handling of all of this. Um, so lots of outrage from Republicans, from Democrats. It's it's fairly, I would say it's muted joy. They're not out on the streets celebrating, but Nancy Pelosi, House Speaker, was on a morning show, morning TV show here this morning, saying that she was as surprised as everybody else. She had no idea this this was happening ahead of time, but that she believed that uh, in order for this to have happened, they must have had a large amount of justification. The FBI must have had a lot of evidence that would have got them uh, the ability to do this raid. And she said it just shows that nobody is above the law. Trump himself wasn't home, we know that, but he is he's pretty upset nonetheless, isn't he? I guess though, uh, well, as you've referred to, Nancy Pelosi pointing out, it's not something that would have occurred without something specific, something particular that the Department of Justice were looking for. Yeah, that's right. This is this is unprecedented. And any legal analyst you listen to here will tell you that it is monumental. Uh, no uh, former or current president's home has ever been raided by federal investigators. So in order for this to have happened, it will have to have been cleared at the highest levels of the Department of Justice. And then they would have had to go to an independent judge to get it signed off because it was a no-knock raid. Um, so that would have needed that as well. So this is 
a large legal threshold has already been passed for this to happen. But because we have not heard anything from the Department of Justice or the FBI about this, the only way we know it's happened is because Donald Trump himself has told us we don't know the reasons for it because the DOJ and the FBI haven't given any kind of statement to explain what it is. We believe, reports suggest that it is to do with uh, 15 boxes of documents that he took with him when he left the White House and moved back to Florida. And the National Archives are concerned that some of those documents are classified and need to get them back. And it is um, it is a criminal act to take classified documents um, out of the state's hands. So uh, that is what people think it is. But because we don't have any word yet from the DOJ or the FBI, we cannot be sure what exactly the reason was behind the raid. What is the man himself saying? What's Donald Trump saying in response? Well, he was outraged. Um, he published uh, a statement on his social media network because, of course, he's banned from uh, Twitter and so on, um, saying that this was uh, prosecutorial misconduct, that he had no warning of it, that they had broken into his safe, um, that he was outraged, the fact that they were there for hours um, and that there were a large number of agents. He referred to the US justice system being like one of a banana republic. Um, so he was very unhappy. And I have, I'm subscribed to, as I'm subscribed to many politicians' emails, I have been bombarded today by emails from Donald Trump and his campaigns telling me what um, an outrage and what a miscarriage of justice this all is. So yeah, he is very angry, but he doesn't have the, the national, well, the global mouthpiece he once had when he had all that social media access. Thanks, Kate. That's Kate Fisher joining us there from Washington. Right, from Florida, we're going to go, uh, well, a long way away to Australia, uh, where it's not been a great week for national icons with the deaths of both Olivia Newton-John and Judith Durham. Uh, joining me now from Brisbane is Pam Corkery. Morena. Morena, lovely to talk to you. Yes, so very sad. Um, Overnight, a niece of Olivia Newton-John has said the family will accept the offer of a state funeral from Victoria's Premier Dan Andrews. Now, the family of Judith Durham have also accepted an offer for a Victorian state funeral for the Seekers vocalist, so um, it's quite going to be quite busy. There's actually a third death from the past 10 days, and he won't be as known, I, I don't think, in New Zealand, but Indigenous singing legend Archie Roach. So that's Three major stars have died in just over a week. Archie, Archie Roach's family turned down the offer of a state funeral of a getting chocker. Um, but last night, the little landmarks around the country all lit up. The main TV news bulletins were dominated, probably you know more than half the bulletin, by the death of Newton John. And there were specials on later in the evening. They'll be shown again today. The Aussie media look after their stars. You know, they really do when they pass away, and even at the time when they're there. It's a big test for me and other women I spoke to last night on whether either Olivia Newton-John or Judith Durham get anywhere near as big an event as Shane Warne did when he passed. Yeah, so a chocker, as you say, but unfortunately for the wrong reasons. Uh, yeah. Hey, look, moving to uh, this chap. This is a this is a, a, a bizarre one, really. Uh once convicted for filming dying police officers. He's back in the news. Who is he? What's the latest? 
Well, this chap, he, he's just an awful human being. Richard Pusey is, and we talked about it um, with Nathan, is yep. the Porsche driver who filmed the aftermath of a freeway crash in Queensland. This is in 2020 that killed four police officers. You know, he filmed them dying. He's now being charged over attaching these graphic photos of the officers as they were in their last moments as part of a complaint to an insurance company. He attached those photos. He wants $2.2 million in damages for the trauma of seeing the police officers violently killed and for his car, his Porsche. Um, the insurance company rejected his claim, said the spokesperson said, I felt repulsed and physically ill when I viewed the photographs. This pussy guy also used one of the graphic photos of a bleeding police officer on the roof of his Porsche. It had flipped up there. Um, as a Google profile picture. Bizarre. Completely. The hearing, yeah, yeah, no, really bad. The hearing continues today. Yeah, now. yeah. Hey, look, uh, this this is another, well, I suppose you could call it bizarre. You could call it, it's an outburst, really. We're talking about Ricky Stewart. Uh, will be well known to league fans on both sides of the ditch, former Australian coach, of course. But he's been given a suspension and a huge fine about some comments he made about a Panthers star by the name of Jamin Salmon. What's the latest? Well, this is the first NRL coach to be handed a suspension by the league. He can't for a week have contact with the club, anyone. He can't even have lunch there. He can't phone them. He has to pay 25 grand um, a fine, which has to be paid by him, not the club. So in the post-match press conference over the weekend, the Raiders-Panthers game, Stuart labelled Jamin Salmon a weak gutted dog. Now, the full quote is, I've had a history with that kid, Salmon. I know that kid very well. He was a weak gutted dog as a kid and he hasn't changed now. He's a weak gutted dog person now. So what this actually, after much research last night, I found out it goes back to when Jamin Salmon was playing as a kid, not even a teenager at league. He made Stuart's son, also playing juniors, cry. The two boys' families haven't spoken since. Let it go, Ricky. Yeah, you've got to wonder, don't you? I mean, Ricky Stewart, I'm just looking now, he's 55. Uh, this kid, as you say, wasn't even, well, he wasn't even a teenager when this happened. Is that what you said? No, yeah. So this goes way, way back. I mean, Salmon's only 23 now, you know. This was years ago. And uh, he's looking at taking a defamation action, apparently. Right, so more to come yeah. potentially. More more hot yeah. water for Ricky, maybe. Hey, um, thanks, Pam. Uh, Pam Corkery there, beaming in from Brisbane. Right, sticking to our international theme this morning, we are going to the Middle East, uh, where Gaza has been in the firing line this week, but a truce between Israel and jihadist groups has been reached. With me now is our correspondent, Alex Beard. Morena, Alex. Morning, Nathan. Uh, Nick here. Nick here. Uh, oh, Nick. Although, 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 although a um, that's a stitch up from our producer Jeremy. Yeah, river, but but nice to be compared to the man himself, of course, oh. of course. What, what a god! What a god he is! Absolutely. Uh, and he'll he'll be back tomorrow, everyone. Don't worry. Uh, he's all good. The latest uh, in the Middle East, the latest in Gaza, f- bring us up to date. Yeah. So it's been pretty nasty out of Gaza. 
um, in the last week. So at the end of last week, um, we saw an operation by the Israeli, well, they call themselves the Israeli Defense Force, uh, basically targeting uh, this group called Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is based out of the Gaza Strip. And, and for those who don't remember, the Gaza Strip is at the bottom of Israel. It is part of the Palestinian um, or th- Palestinian territories. And it's supposed to be separate from Israel, but it has been basically under siege, essentially, by Israeli armed forces for quite a long, long time now. And the Israeli Defense Force said that they were carrying out an operation to neutralize what they saw as threats that were about to be carried out. But basically, this turned into a three-day bombardment of the Gaza Strip. Um, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of volleys of missiles. Um, rockets were fired back into Israel, but Israel has a very sophisticated um, defense defense capability called the Iron Dome. And basically, not a, uh, barely any of those rockets fired from Gaza actually landed in Israel. And like so many of these things go, they started off as an Israeli Defense Force operation to protect Israeli uh, citizens. But in this operation, not a single Israeli died, but 44 Palestinians were killed, including 15 children. Now, after three days, Egypt stepped in and said, hey, 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 we have to end this and brokered a truce. And this truce has been holding holding since that was instituted. But this has been the most violence that we've seen um, Since May 2021, these things seem to happen. It's also election season in Israel. It's the, I think it's the fifth election in four years. And so I wouldn't be surprised if if we should be looking at this as a bit of a strongman tactic from those who, from from the the man himself who's running the country at the moment, who's wanting to get back into the big chair. Um, I would see this as a bit of a political move, but it's ended in the deaths of 44 people. Yeah, fifth, ele- uh, fifth election in four years. That's what um, yeah. it's not exactly stable, is it? Um, makes you makes you feel pretty lucky to to be from a place like here. Uh, but let's go to Iran uh, because there might have been a breakthrough in negotiating an agreement over that country's nuclear deal. Yeah, so I've spoken about this on this show a few times in the last year, and this is kind of the never-ending story. So basically, in 2015, there was this nuclear deal that was signed off between a number of Western powers, especially the US and Iran. And basically, it saw the dropping of Western sanctions against Iran. And in return, Iran agreed to back off its nuclear program. Um, That all fell apart in the the Trump era, when Trump said this is a terrible deal for Americans and basically um, pulled out of this deal. So Iran said, well, we're pulling out too. And now the fight has been on since then to somehow get the wheels back on the, the car that is this agreement. And we seem to almost be at a pivotal point, um, the EU, EU negotiators telling, a, um, telling Politico, which is uh, a, an American a news outlet, telling them that basically a final text to an agreement has been circulated and now it's just up to the Americans and the Iranians to sign the thing. Um, the Iranians came out, I believe it was about a week or so ago, saying that, hey, we have the capability to build a nuclear bomb now, but we won't do it, don't worry, but we could do it if we wanted to. So I think there'll be a bit of a sigh of, sigh of relief when this deal is finally signed. And for the first time in years, it seems like we're almost at the point where that deal could be back in force. But as it, al- as it always is with this, this nuclear deal, you never really know. So here's hoping. Yeah, sigh of relief. You can say that again. Uh, hey, just quickly, uh, Turkey has sent a ship to drill for gas in the eastern Mediterranean. First time that's happened in a few years why is it, why are people up in arms about it? I suppose is the question here. Yeah, so 
Well, the Mediterranean, the Eastern Mediterranean is a bit of a quirky place in terms of international boundaries. You've got Turkey, you've got Greece, you've got Cyprus, all with maritime borders that are hard up against one another. And basically back in 2020, Turkey sent out a seismic survey ship all kitted out with warships side to side to an area of the Eastern Mediterranean where Greece claimed exclusive rights to potential undersea oil and gas deposits. And then Greece sent its, sent its own warships to shadow this Turkish flotilla of warships. And both countries conducted all these military exercises. So it basically flared things up. And now this time, Turkey has seen an opportunity because, and it said it, the Turks said this themselves, you know, we're having an issue at the moment with, right, with, with getting gas into mm. Europe and Turks saying, hey, maybe we could go and fill that gap and make a bit of money here. The Turks have gone out again after two years since this flare-up in the Mediterranean and are now sending their newest and largest undersea hydrocarbon drill ship to a spot that's just northwest of Cyprus. Now, they say that this is their waters, that they're not going to cause any issues because they're not, they're not overstepping into anyone else's maritime areas, but this is such a sensitive part of the world. Yeah. And you're also seeing Greece often get involved here because... In theory, Greece and Turkey are NATO allies who are often, though, at each other's throats. So let's see what happens here. Turkey's being opportunistic and saying, hey, we can make some money while things mm. are going on between Russia, Ukraine, and the rest of the world. Um, and let's try, try yeah. not to step on any other fingers. Yep. Opportunistic, to say the least. Hey, uh, thanks, Alex. Alex Beard there, live from Doha. Right, it is 23 minutes past five. I'm Nick Truebridge, you're with First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, latest research showing extreme weather events are making infectious diseases more severe and a political commentator on the Sam Uffendel saga. Time for our usual Wednesday trip to Trade Me. We were looking at one of the coolest cars to have featured in this spot, a 1957 Aston Martin DB2. Wow, pretty cool, but get this. Uh, this is for the kids of the 1980s, a Knight Rider pedal car. But first, before those two, Jeremy Parkinson, our producer, spoke with Trade Me's Ruby Topsand about an auction raising funds for the Quarry Arts Centre in Whangarei. That's right, something we look forward to every year, the Quarry Arts School's uh, Great Plate fundraiser. And the brief is given to a number of local artists. This year there's actually 90 plates, so there's really something for everyone. And I imagine the brief was pretty open. All it really has to be is a plate and artists uh, that are involved certainly do kind of take that and do what with it what they please but yeah we every year they, these come up and we uh, wipe all the fees to make sure all of the money makes it to the art school and all the wonderful work that they do in the community this year to upgrade the kilns and, and other buildings like you said and they all start at fifty dollars so it's really great kind of approachable way to get involved in collecting some beautiful art. Currently, Dale Pryor's The Caterpillar Platter is sitting at 395 with 45 bytes on that one, and that's the highest bid on any of the plates. When do these close? So they all close on Sunday, um, Sunday afternoon, the 14th of August. And, yeah, I think we'll see a lot of these pick up in price, but there will be, you know, with 90 plates, there will be something for everyone in there and worth having a look. And also, if you do happen to be passing through Whangarei, that you can go and see the plates in person there. But, yeah, great auction, something we look forward to every year, and we hope that our members enjoy too. 
two cars in uh, the the, uh, the trade me spot this morning. The first is a Knight Rider pedal car. This is a, a, a pedal car that talks, so just like the Knight Rider car. I think the price tag of 1500 is going to be interesting. I'm quite curious to see what happens when this one closes on Friday afternoon at 4pm. Because, you know, that might be a big ask, but we'll kind of let our members decide there. Perhaps somebody's willing to fork it out. But it's had quite a lot of interest. I think the most interesting thing about this collectible is that the owner has had brand new stickers done professionally that are more that are water resistant and, and will hold on better than the original stickers so it's quite an amazing uh, process to go through and yeah i think one for the nostalgic here because i'm the court sort of guy who does buy those sorts of things from my childhood but then you've grown up and you want you're not going to fit into the car yeah, and your kids will be like that you what and then you wouldn't even let them sit in it anyway because it cost you 1500 bucks so good, yeah. good luck to them is all i can say i know and, and then you think you know 1500 bucks goes quite a long way towards the car that you could fit in and could actually drive well um, yes and and which is quite a nice segue to the next auction because for uh around about three hundred and seventy-five thousand, you can get a real car this is an yes. Aston Martin DB2. Now, this was imported new into New Zealand in 1957. So it's a New Zealand new Aston Martin DB2. They want 375000 and it looks like it's worth every cent. They certainly do want that much. This one is amazing, and I love the description that's written here. As you said, imported in 1957 and sold to its first owner, Ernest de who, according to the listing description, was a notable New Zealand bacon curer businesses, businessman and art collector who had six original goldies in his collection at one point. So a bit of colour there. But yes, it sold, kept in the family until 2012 and then was sold into its, to its new owner then and then completely restored in 2014. And they have outlined the truly extensive work that was done to restore this car. And it's paid off because it is beautiful. It's a, most, it's a stunning car. It looks impeccable condition, beautiful book shell and, and all of the beautiful chrome trimmings. It's stunning. So I wonder who might end up with this one next. That's Trade Me's Ruby Topsand. Right, it is uh, 5.31 uh, in the morning. You're with First Up. I'm Nick Truebridge and you're on RNZ National. Right, joining us now from our business team is Anand Zaki. Morena, Anand. Morena, Nick. Uh, what are you focusing on this morning? I've got a uh, a little note here saying don't get wound up. Well, don't get wound up. It's easier said than done over the prospect of negative equity on your home. Yeah, well, you know, we were talking about the falling house prices yesterday and, you know, that brings up a new set of issues, which um, for those lucky enough to buy that is, and among them is a negative equity. So, Negative uh, equity is when the value of a mortgage exceeds the sale value of a property. So if you bought your house at the market peak and you now owe more than the house is worth. Uh, but uh, home buyers are being told, yes, uh, not to get wound up over the prospect. Uh, so just to recap from yesterday, we saw the average value of a house 
fall to about 990,000, below a million mark for the first time since September, still very high. Um, now, we spoke to CoreLogic, the property research company, and they said negative, uh, negative equity may only be a problem for some homeowners if they need to sell. So possibly uh, someone who bought in the second half of last year when the market was really hot and saw the value of their property fall. Uh, so CoreLogic's prof- chief property economist, uh, Calvin Davidson, told us that the good news is with unemployment so low, there isn't a lot of pressure for people to sell at the moment. And unemployment is expected to stay low for 6 to 12 months. So uh, don't worry too much uh, just yet. Uh, but he did add that in a declining market, homeowners uh, refinancing at high interest rates will have to uh, tighten the purse strings uh, or to prioritise spending to offset those costs. And TikTok's been in the news a little bit lately, uh, sort of talked about as a way of, well, people sharing various crimes, particularly ram raids in Auckland. But it's in the news for something else, uh, a privacy warning over its New Zealand data. Fill us in. Yeah, so it's a warning from a cybersecurity company uh, calling on uh, our watchdogs and the government to increase scrutiny over privacy of New Zealand data held by TikTok. Uh, And this is on the back of international concerns about what access the Chinese government has to the platform's data. So TikTok is owned by Chinese company ByteDance. Uh, It's privately owned. But CyberX, this cybersecurity company, operates uh, Australia and New Zealand. Uh, They say that data stored in mainland China and held by Chinese companies can legally be accessed by the Chinese government for national security reasons. So the app has uh, access to things like phone location data, contacts, messages, search history, and even keystroke patterns. And, you know, users' engagement uh, with the app can also reveal sensitive information like political preferences. Uh, And we spoke to CyberX's uh, Adam Boileau, and he told us that like many many social media companies, TikTok is pretty cagey about information it collects about its New Zealand users. And uh, in this case, New Zealanders are being told to especially be worried about any access the Chinese government has to this data and the risk of misuse. And it's highlighting that the Chinese government's approach to privacy and human rights is uh, fundamentally different to that of uh, New Zealand's. So just very quickly, if you're using the app, is your data, if you're using the app in New Zealand, is your data effectively uh, stored and can be accessed by the Chinese? Yeah, so they can do it under, uh, under the, you know, for national security reasons. Uh, and Whatever to they use may be. the app, yeah. Yeah, yeah, whatever that may be, and to use it, to use the app, you have to agree to give it access to, you know, a yeah. lot of permission to like location data, contact messages, yep. search history, and all those things. So it, it yep. opens a whole uh, lot of uh, issues there. Sure does, sure does. Hey, thanks, Anand. Uh, you can hear more from the business team on Morning Report at ten to seven. And while we're on that, uh, let's turn to what your New Zealand dollar is being traded at around the world. It's currently at sixty two point seven seven US cents, ninety point one six Australian cents, sixty one point four four euro, fifty one point nine five British pence, four point two four yuan, eighty four point seven eight Japanese yen, and two point two one Papua New Guinean kina. Right, uh, we are going to some weather research. The latest research shows weather events, including heat waves and increased flooding, are making the most infectious diseases 
more severe. The study says certain climate hazards have aggravated 58% of human bacterial and viral illnesses. But the full threat to humanity in the context of climate change and disease is unknown. Earlier, I spoke to one of the researchers, Eric Franklin. The study was a review of, of the literature on relationships between climate hazards and human pathogenic diseases. And one of the, I think, you know, shocking or sobering results we found is that of the, the list of 375 diseases that we uh, addressed, over 58% of them would be negatively impacted by climate change, meaning that they're going to be exacerbated. And so 218 of these 375 diseases had a negative outcome from potential future climate effects. So how on earth do you carry something like this out? It, it, it's a it seems as though it's a relatively large undertaking with some, uh, well, some pretty interesting results. Yeah, it's it's actually a fun exercise um, that uh, in our geography and environment department at the University of Hawaii, we run an annual course that's been organized by my colleague, the lead author on this, Camilo Mora. And I've been participating for the last four or five years where we bring a group of students and faculty together and postdocs also and we brainstorm on big questions related to global climate change. And so this has led to a number of high profile papers on things like heat waves, um, the effect of cryptocurrency on climate change. We you know, obviously have this paper out now and, and a number of other uh, issues. And so the latest was, it was timely obviously because of the COVID pandemic, we were thinking about what is the impact of climate change on diseases. Can you give us some examples? Uh, can we look at, I don't know, a, p- a particular infectious disease and the way that uh, you have found that is affected by, well, an, an event that is caused by climate change? Yeah, so, you know, some examples are are things like, you know, dengue, which is transmitted by mosquitoes, where you've got certain climate hazards that influence maybe the extent or the emergence or timing of those. And this is just one example of, of literally, uh, we found over a thousand what we are calling unique pathways. And by a pathway, we have these 10 climate hazards, and then we have a number of different transmission paths. And by that meaning, it can be waterborne, foodborne, airborne, et cetera, and then leading to a, a human pathogenic disease outcome. And so we found a thousand of those unique combinations. And so that's just one of, of many. Given, you know, you say the full threat to humanity in the context of climate change and disease is unknown, would you expect that this 58% finding could well increase if things continue to go the way they are from a climate change perspective? Yeah, you know, the, the way it's structured is, is we look for historic published examples of a relationship between a climate hazard through a transmission pathway leading to some aggravation of a human disease. It's not to say that some some new emergent relationships couldn't happen, but we feel, it, at least at this point, this is a, a pretty definitive work that looked at really a, a number of hazards, a number of diseases that we hadn't found before in the literature. Did the results surprise you and your team, or were you aware of some fairly obvious examples that could come out? For instance, I'm just looking at storms and flooding causing particular diseases to be worse. Yeah, there's. it's been pretty broadly accepted that climate change would have negative impacts on human diseases, but the scale and scope wasn't really fully understood until this paper. And so 
I don't know if there were any particular specific examples that popped out. It was more just the volume of these that was shocking that you just, you know, we, we really didn't have a preconceived notion, but to think that it would be over half was, was really not what we were anticipating. When you complete a piece of research like this, uh, what is it used for? I suppose the question, to put it really simply, is ultimately what's the point? Yeah, so the, the point of this, I, I like to say my day job, I'm actually a fishery scientist and a marine ecologist. And so I work in tropical systems where we see the effects of climate change every single day. And so this part of my research portfolio, along with the colleagues involved in the paper, is trying to bring a, a broader knowledge and awareness of these sort of issues that will lead hopefully to an immediate decrease in in greenhouse gas emissions. This is what will drive these negative health effects. Um, And so we're hoping that at least this paper will be another piece in the the story that says, listen, we're, we're on a path that's unsustainable. We need to do something about it now. So with a view to, I suppose, continuing to, well, protect our health, what should we be doing from a, from a climate change point of view? not polluting, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it it really does get down to um, decreasing, diminishing our our global footprint through greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, the secondary thing from this paper, we actually also created an online web tool and um, it's within the press release, it's within the paper itself that will allow healthcare practitioners to navigate all of the results of our review so that if they have an interest in a particular disease or a particular transmission type, they can drill down to the examples that we pulled out of the literature to learn more about that and hopefully be able to use it for informing their own you know, healthcare practices to try and help anticipate what may occur. Researcher Eric Franklin there. It's 18 minutes to six. I'm Nick Truebridge and you're with First Up on RNZ National. Still to come, nomination lists for local government elections are looking sparse, with one council fearing a by-election will be triggered if they don't receive another registration for the position of mayor. And a political commentator on the Sam Uffendale saga. Right, the professionals of Morning Reporter are past the six, and for a quick preview of our flagship news programme is Corin Dan Mordina. Uh, good m- morning, Ethan. Uh, sorry, just getting a bit of feedback into my hands at the moment. Sorry, I didn't... Um See if we can sort that out. I can't hear, but I'm hearing myself twice. Anyway, I'll take take them off and start talking. We We are going to have uh, more this morning on this issue of a female flatmate of Sam Uffendale's from his university days in 2003 uh, that alleges she was bullied and intimidated uh, so badly she was forced to flee for her own safety. Now, he has denied those allegations, uh, saying he had a number of flatmates that fell out during his second year at university, rejects those accusations, but we will hear more from the woman and her father uh, in an interview just after seven on Morning Report. Uh, National Sam Uffendale has, of course, now been stood down uh, from the party's caucus while there'll be an investigation. So we'll have more on that. Christopher Luxon will be uh, on the programme as well to respond to that. So quite a lot of politics there. Uh, we've got other stories too. We will look uh, into, of course, the issue, incredible situation in the US with the uh, with Donald Trump and the Mar-a-Lago uh, FBI raid on the uh, supposed archives material that we think uh, that he's been holding there. More on the Wellington slips as well, and have also spoken to uh, the US Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, about New Zealand's defence relationship with the US. 
A loaded show. Thanks, Corin. Uh, morning report coming up in uh, about 13 minutes. 13 minutes more of goodness on first up. Beginning with the clock ticking for people uh, who plan to stand for local government this year. With the cut-off time looming, some councils have far fewer candidates than usual. This is becoming a bit of a problem around the country and it's causing fears that some seats may not even be filled. Here's our Tom Taylor with the story. Nominations for local government close at midday this Friday, but with just over two days to go, many councils and community boards are struggling to fill their seats, let alone muster any competition between candidates. The situation is looking so dire that local government New Zealand held a media conference yesterday that took on the form of an SOS. We know that we have far less candidates who have put their names forward than we actually have spaces on our local councils and community boards. So we're really wanting to, I guess, an antidote to this SOS for local democracy is actually getting the word out there that local government is this incredible platform for driving positive change in our communities and we need people who are on the ground in our communities to actually step up and put themselves forward for these leadership roles. As of yesterday morning, Carterton District Council had just one person registered to stand for the mayoralty, incumbent Mayor Greg Lang. And of the eight seats for the council at large, just four nominations have come through so far. Carterton Communications and Engagement Manager Elisa Brown says that some barriers may be making people more hesitant to run for council this year. I think there's a lot coming into play here. Obviously, um, a lot of people have a bit of like COVID and lockdown fatigue. They're feeling the impacts of inflation and rising costs of living. And on top of that, people know it's a tough time to be in local government. They recognise that being a councillor takes commitment and the remuneration doesn't allow for many of them to give it the commitment that the role needs. I think also people can see the public pressure that's put on existing elected members and the changing face of local government, especially with a lot of reforms and new legislations coming in from central government. And many people feel like that pressure is just not worth it. Earlier this year, Carterton District Council launched a tongue-in-cheek advertising campaign urging residents to stand up and be counted. So we had one campaign slogan that was grumble, grumble, angry online comment. And what that was aimed at is the people that we see every day hiding behind those fake profiles and, and making a lot of hot shots at council or some of the elected members. And it's very much a put your money where your mouth is and if you want to make a change, then you make a change. We're very aware of of what goes on on social media and we do take it into account with our day-to-day actions. But at the same time, if you want to make genuine change, you need to do it around the council table. You need to represent those voices in the community that feel that they're unheard. Although the campaign generated a lot of interest, That interest had not translated into nominations. We're definitely seeing that people, you know, they're passionate about their community. There's things that they like that are happening, there's things that they want to change, but they're not necessarily feeling that they're the person that should do it. So they think that somebody should stand up and do it, but that person isn't them. With time running out, the council is hoping that more candidates burst through the doors before it's too late. We hope that last minute rush isn't too last minute. Nominations close at midday on Friday. And if you turn up at 5 to 12 and you don't have all your information, you're going to miss out. Meanwhile, at Invercargill City Council, there's strong interest in the mayoralty, with five candidates vying for the role as of midday yesterday. Candidates for the council at large were slower to roll in, but at the latest count there were now 14 competing for 12 seats. 
Invercargill City Council Chief Executive Claire Hadley says there has been strong engagement in this year's election process. We've certainly had a spotlight on our mayoralty and our governance over the past few years. You'd be aware that the council has faced its own unique challenges. So we certainly think it's pleasing to see that the community is watching and engaged and they're keen to stand up and advocate for the city's and the community's best interests. But while Invercargill has a fair share of prospective councillors, just one of five vacancies for the Bluff Community Board has been filled so far. If there aren't enough candidates by midday Friday, a by-election will be triggered, which could take months to resolve. It's a situation Claire Hadley experienced in her previous role as Chief Executive of Rangitike District Council. We never had enough candidates for the Ratana Community Board. And what happens is you need to run a by-election. Chief Returning Officer at Elections.com, Warwick Lamp, manages the elections for 39 councils across New Zealand. He says this year's nominations have been much slower to roll in than previous years. Nominations are certainly down across the country. Some councils, you know, even... 25, 30% of what they would normally have at this time, being you know, a few days to go. However, he's not worried that too many council seats will be empty come midday Friday. I think we are in for a pretty hectic week this week for the last minute surge, and I'm confident that we'll, there'll be enough candidates for, you know, across most of the elections across the country. First up's Tom Taylor there. Right, to the story everyone's talking about, really, National MP Sam Uffendale says he has no plans to leave Parliament. Earlier this week, news broke he had attacked a young boy when he was 16 at boarding school. Last night, though, the new MP was suspended from the National Party caucus pending further investigations into his past behaviour, particularly at university. Mr Uffendale says he told National's pre-selection panel about the incident before standing in the Tauranga by-election. But the 60 regional delegates who chose him, well, they didn't know, nor did the party leadership. In fact, Nicola Willis told us she found out uh, at lunchtime on Monday, just before the public. But he admits the assault, Mr Uffendale admits the assault was relevant information for voters in his electorate. Well, joining us is political commentator Shane Tepoe. Morena. Morena, morena. Let's start with uh, Mr Mm. Uffendale's apology. Uh, He was all over the breakfast shows yesterday morning before holding a stand-up, obviously. I'm sure you would have seen that, Shane. Uh, What do you think of this? I I suppose, do you think this was information that should have been relevant uh, to voters in the by-election? Oh, absolutely, you know, and omission is, uh, is a falsification. And the people of the good people of Tauranga deserve to have all the facts presented to them before they made they were you know but before they made the, the decision. Look, Uffendale will not survive this. I think there will be a by-election uh, in Tauranga sooner rather than later. I think there needs to be two other resignations. Peter Goodfellow, he oversaw the process. He was the president. He was responsible. He should have he should have he should have been all over this. Given what had happened to previous candidates like like Falloon and Jamie Lee Ross, he should have been all over this. And the and the leader of the opposition's pointsman, Todd McClay, knew about this supposedly and didn't tell his leader. This is a, a stuff up of of, of gigantic proportions um, that has beset the National Party in the past. It's not it's not as if it's their first rodeo. Why is this a story, Shane? I mean, we have had, well, very mixed feedback. A lot of people saying Mr Uffendale needs to go. 
A lot of people saying this was a 16-year-old boy, although uh, it would appear, at least there are allegations of behaviour when he was older than that at university. But why should people care? I believe in redemption. I've made mistakes in my life. I've been given a second chance. Many people have been given a second chance. This is not so much about the assault on on the 13-year-old using a weapon and three of his mates were involved in it. This is about the fact that the people of Tauranga were not given the relevant information on, on which their decision ultimately should have been made. And I think that's the big story here. And, uh, you know, you, you, you've got now these latest uh, these latest allegations. We need we need due process in relation to this. But, you know, this is not a, this is not a, a legal prism. This is a political prism. And this is the lens that it needs to it needs to be looked through. And this is just intolerable given National's form on these issues. Uh, National Selection Panel knew about uh, particularly the King's College issue, uh, you know, before he was picked as their man to run in Tauranga. But it wasn't disclosed, A, to voters. It also wasn't disclosed to the National Party leadership, uh, Nicola Willis, Christopher Luxon, in fact, Nicola Willis told us on Monday that she had found out lunchtime that day. W- would you have expected, as someone who's been involved around the traps in politics, that this is the sort of information that your leader leaders should be across? Absolutely. No, no look, how much detail did the pre-selection committee know? You know, um, he, uh, Sam said that he... he, he gave a written disclosure, well, let's publish it. Let's be absolutely transparent about the level of detail and then just and then just as a political operative, who sat down with them, who went through the detail and, and you know, and who asked the hard questions. Of course the leader of the opposition should have known, of course the deputy leaders of the, of the opposition should have known and their point person on this who was put in charge because of his experience and his political nows was Todd McClay and he failed to tell his, to tell his leader and that's why I believe that his political uh, tenureship is, is limited and you know you still got good fellow no longer the president but on the board, on, on national boards you know people have to pay a price for this. You're expecting a by-election, Shane. You think, uh, you know, obviously Mr Ruffendell and his leadership came out yesterday, well, sort of indicating that he would su- would survive the the initial claims around the high school boarding house, but you think these latest claims could be the straw that breaks the camel's back? Yeah, look, on, on around 6.30 uh, last night on this uh, platform party, people, I said that his tenureship was, uh, was limited, uh, and um, and that this story had more legs. I didn't get a whisper from anyone in the newsroom, but I just thought at the time my gut um, sort of told me, having been around a little while, there was more to this, and it looks like there is. It's it's pretty bad timing for a political party, isn't it? They've just had a really good, really promising poll come out. Uh, the Kantar One News poll basically showing yeah. that the Nats could form a government with ACT, uh, if the election was today, that is. How do you think this is going to sway people's opinions? Well, I, I, I think this will be about political Just quickly. judgment. I think it'll be about political judgment. I think this will be about political character. Yesterday, the leader of the opposition said that he supports uh, Uffendale, and that certainly won't be the case today. Mm.
Yeah. All right, Shane. Hey, thanks, Shane Tapo, the political commentator. That is it from us on First Up. Corin and Guy on Up Next. They will have the latest developments on the Sam Uffindel saga. Do listen in. And Nathan will be back in the seat tomorrow. He's coming back. Make sure you tune in. Oh, 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 oh,